The Iliad by Homer, adapted and read to you by George Weedman, with music and sound effects from Epidemic Sound. Book 4. The stalemate of the Trojan War is broken. After Zeus convinced Agamemnon to charge his men into the gates of Troy, the Trojans pled for a truce to end the war with a duel, Prince Paris against King Menelaus. Although Menelaus won the duel, the goddess Aphrodite rescued Paris from death, disrupting the plans of the supreme god Zeus. Now Zeus and the gods were seated in council on their golden floor, while Hebe went round and poured them nectar to drink. And as they raised their golden goblets, they looked down to Troy, and Zeus grew annoyed at what he was seeing, thinking to provoke his wife, the ox-eyed Lady Hera. Look at them fighting each other down there. Menelaus has two gods on his side, Athena of Argos and Hera of Boeotia but they held back and let him stay occupied. But then comes Aphrodite dragging Paris off into a cloud. Without her, he'd have died. How'd he get through the crowd? Nevertheless, victory has clearly gone to Menelaus, but we're not done with them yet. Some promises still need to be kept. Let us discuss in council what we will do. Will we rouse up anger and make a battle, or honor this pact of theirs and keep it true. The Trojans have sacrificed us much cattle, and ever more will come if the Achaeans withdrew. So he spoke, while Athena and Hera whispered against him, desiring trouble for the Trojans and holding their words carefully, Athena growing furious with resentment as she listened quietly, until Hera finally couldn't contain herself. Most dreaded son of Kronos, whatever do you mean? Is all of my effort going to waste then? All the sweat that I have sweated? The exhaustion of my horses who gathered up these armies against Priam and his sons? Go ahead, do as you will, but us gods won't all be on your side for this. Deeply angered, Zeus, who gathers the clouds, spoke. Oh, my beloved dear wife, what did King Priam even do to you? Why are you so bent on destroying their strong-built citadel? Your anger would never be quenched unless you were to swoop down there through his gates yourself and eat him and all his sons raw. Go ahead, do as you will, but do not let this matter become a bone of contention between us. One other thing, and you take this to heart, the next time I too am minded to smite one of the mortal cities, you will have to let me do it. Even if your favorite mortals live inside, do nothing to thwart my anger, since I am letting you do it this time, against my will. Of all the mortal cities that lie beneath the sun and starry heavens, none is more honored in my heart than Ilion. For my altars there have never lacked for honor. The loyal Trojans have always feasted and poured libations, and filled our sky with that savory aroma of roasted meat. And to him the ox-eyed Lady Hera spoke. 
Well, I'm only accounting for the mortals with better taste in women. Those from the cities of Sparta, Argos, and Mycenae. If you go after them someday, I won't stop you. After all, you are such a stronger god than me. But I, too, am still a god of the same race as yourself. And I was born from Kronos before you were. And I am a consort to the highest of all the gods. So, fine then. We shall both concede to each other. You should order Athena to go down there and intervene. Have her ensure that the Trojans will defy their sworn oaths. Have them violate the victorious Achaeans. So she spoke, and Zeus did not refuse her. Straight away he spoke to Athena in winged words, telling her what she was already eager to hear, that she was to go down and intervene, violating the sworn oaths of the Trojans and defying the victorious Achaeans. Down she darted from the heights of Olympus, flashing through the sky, shooting just as when Zeus hurls down a star, showing a portent to sailors and armies, glittering with a fiery train of light in its wake. So too were the Trojans and Achaeans struck with awe as they beheld. One soldier would turn to his neighbor and say, Wow, the gods are up to something up there. Zeus, the dispatcher of battle, is either stirring up the dreadful noise of combat or settling our sides down to friendship. Thus spoke the common soldiers. And then Athena took the form of a Trojan man, Laodokos, son of Antenor, and she searched through the lines of Trojans for Pandarus, the godlike son of Lycaon, noble, mighty, standing still among his shield-wielding comrades. She stood close behind and addressed him in winged words. Wake up, listen, canst thou hear? A well-timed counsel with a willing ear. What praise will be thine if thou direct thy dart into your enemy's king, the Spartan's heart? What gifts from Troy, from Paris thou will gain? Thy country's foe, the Achaeans slain. Think of your sons, not one will be a miller, not those from Pandarus, the mighty king-killer. Seize this moment, dare your mighty deed, aim at his breast, and may thou aim succeed. Thus she spoke, and so was trusting Pandarus persuaded. Immediately he drew out his bow, made from the horns of a wild goat that was in the midst of its running, bounding from rock to rock, until stalking Pandarus struck it in the heart, tumbling it downward. Its horns were sixteen palms in length, and a craftsman skilled in the working of horns polished them smooth, binding them together with sinew into a threaded stave, gilding its tips with gold. Pandarus crouched and strung the bow. His brave followers raised their shields above him, mitigating for the possibility of an Achaean attack, should they spot him before he shot them, aiming above all for the Spartan king, Menelaus, son of Atreus. Pandarus opened the lid of his quiver. He took out an extraordinary winged arrow never before shot, iron-tipped and jagged with the barbs of death. He strung the arrow and prayed to Lycaean Apollo, vowing to honor the god with a sacrifice of one hundred firstborn lambs. He laid its notch into the string and drew both notch and string into his breast, the bow groaning into a crescent on his chest. Pandarus pointed it high into the air above Menelaus, and he let fly. The bow twanged, the string sang, the arrow furiously gliding into the Achaean throng. When 
suddenly there appeared Athena, never failing to forget her protection over the godlike son of Atreus, gliding above the arrow she pointed down the smallest of her fingers, and as gently as a mother brushes a fly from her child when sleeping sweetly in divine slumber, she diverted the arrow from its destined course, just one gentle touch toying with its force. Into the fitted, buckled belt of his baldric the arrow tore, the iron slicing through the breastplate he bore. The armor intended chiefly to defend against missiles did nothing to save his kingly flesh, running cleanly out the side of his thigh. Instantly, the wound poured out a cloud of dark blood, filling up the folds of his tunic, and onto this cold suffering Agamemnon watched. When his eyes met the blood trickling down the thighs, following it up to the arrow's exposed barbs, passion took a hold of him, and Agamemnon shuddered in terror. The son of Atreus, lord of men, groaned heavily, and took his brother's hand into his own, while their mourning companions moaned in concert. Oh... Oh no, 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 dear brother, no! What a fool I was, what obvious treachery! I did this, I was the death of you, I swore this oath of theirs, I ordered you out there alone into their trap. If it is your destiny now to die in your bones, to rot out here in the Trojan plain, then be sure that oath was not made in vain. Ilion's fall will come someday, be they victorious today through treachery, or even if they chase us all the way back across the sea, and the contemptible creature that I'll become cowers back with them, and I live on in shame and die forgotten, even then, even someday, far later in some year unforetold, their towers still will fall, for Zeus spares none of his fury for this criminal immorality. We didn't know! That wasn't my order! I didn't know! Zeus holds only hatred for liars, their crimes compounded from a breach of hospitality, and now a breach of the sacred sworn truce. Zeus will brandish his aegis and grind you all in atonement. Every single Trojan will pay with their wives and their children for this. Be it my will or by the gods, this will not go unaccomplished. But Menelaus was still feeling it where the arrow fell, and replied back in trembling words. Take heart, brother. For now, hold back your alarm. I think he missed. I think he just grazed me from mortal harm. The baldric, that belt of burnished metal, I think it slowed the arrow. Have courage. Do not frighten our men. Send off word, and bring me a surgeon. With that being said, Agamemnon addressed the sacred herald Talthybios, and he spoke. Go with all speed now and summon Machaon, the mortal son of Asclepius. Some Trojan or Lycian archer out there has wounded Menelaus, thinking to bring great honor to himself and sorrow for us. 
Talthibios heard the words and obeyed, searching among the hosts for Mekaeon, whom he found standing among many brave warriors who followed him from Tricca. Thereon he met Mekaeon and said, You are Mekaeon, son of Asclepius? King Agamemnon says you are to be summoned with all speed. Menelaus has been wounded, some Trojan or Lycaean archer out there, thinking to bring great honor to himself and sorrow for us. Thus he spoke, and Machaon was eager to go. They passed through the rippling throng of men into a circle that formed around Menelaus. Machaon walked through them like a god, and at once he drew out the arrow lodged in his belt. Ah. The barbs bended backwards, tearing their way out. Machaon loosened the belt and pulled away the breastplate, the leather and the tunic underneath it, and on looking cleanly at the opened wound, he sucked the blood, in preparation for its impurity, for the possibility of its poisoning. <coughs> and then soon after, Machaon expertly sprinkled on healing unguents, given in friendship to his father Asclepius by the centaur Chiron. First a powder to thicken and staunch the bleeding, and then soothing herbs to subdue the pain. But while Menelaus was being attended to, the Trojans were hurrying back to put on their armor, and their lines slowly crawled closer, with their shields raised and their arms ready. And you would have never seen Agamemnon more ready to fight. Never before was there not even a single echo of cowardice in his heart, more ready than ever to rush into the battles where men earn glory. He rode his extravagant bronze chariot back towards the Achaean ranks for a final inspection, and left his panting horses behind with his henchman Eurymedon, the son of Ptolemaeus, the son of Piraeus, and told him to keep those horses ready, for he soon would become weary from marshalling so many men. Agamemnon marched on foot before all the ranks, and those eager fleet-footed Danaeans hasty to fight, he rallied on with praise and cheer. Argives, never relax that fine courage of yours. Never doubt whether Zeus will be with us, for Zeus holds nothing but hatred for liars. The Trojans have broken their ropes and attacked us, and for their guilt they will be devoured by vultures. Their precious wives and little children will be cargo for our ships. The son of Atreus continued to inspect the ranks, and those who he saw shirking and hanging back, for those disinclined to fight this hated war, he rebuked them with angry words. Argives, cowardly, miserable creatures, standing here like frightened deer that have been chased to exhaustion. Do you all have no fight in you, or are you waiting for the Trojans to push us back against the hollow ships? Are you holding back and betting on Zeus to save you all? Thus he acted as lord of men, ranging through the ranks until he came upon the Cretans, armoring themselves around Lord Adamaneus, fierce as a wild boar. Agamemnon was glad to see this man and spoke fairly. Adamaneus, I regard you with greater distinction than I do any other Achaean. Whether in war or at a table of feasts, where the other princes never fail to keep our two wine cups full, only you and I get that degree of attention. Now rouse yourself to battle, and show yourself as the man you were always proud to be. And to him, Adamaneus answered, I promised you I would be a trusty comrade. 
Urge on the other Achaeans to join battle, for the Trojans have trampled upon their covenant. Death and destruction only awaits them now, seeing that they broke a sacred oath and were the first to attack. Agamemnon, son of Atreus, was glad, and he moved on until he came across the two named Ajax, armoring themselves amidst a cloud of troops. As when a shepherd of goats climbs up a mountain peak, and spotting a dark storm cloud approaching from the west wind's blast, a cloud so dark that it seems black as pitch over the sea, and the shepherd drives his flock into a cave from fear, so horrid was the cloud of men under command of the Ajaxes, and the terrible sight of so many shields and spears gladdened the heart of Agamemnon. No need to give orders to you two men. You spur your men on to fight and maim by your own selves. If only Zeus and Athena and Apollo put such a spirit in every man's heart, then King Priam's city would have fallen beneath our hands long ago. On and on Agamemnon moved, until he came next across Nestor, the wise speaker of Pylos, rallying his men and moving them into formation. He put his chariots and their horses in the front rank, his many brave foot soldiers who he trusted in the rear, a defensive wall against the pushes of battle, the cowards he placed in the middle so they may be forced to fight even when unwilling. Nestor was parading in front of the horsemen, ordering them with wise words of experienced strategy. Let no man march out before the lines alone. No man shall engage singly with the Trojans, nor let him lag behind. You'll be less effective either way. The men of old never forgot that. We won wars and took strongholds only by keeping together. Thus the old man urged them on in the old ways of wars, and King Agamemnon was glad. I wish your strength in your limbs were as sharp as your judgment, Nestor. But mortal aging, the common enemy of all mankind, that was the only foe ever to lay hands on you. If only you were born years later and still young now, old friend. Nestor the Geranian horseman spoke and answered him. Oh, I too would be glad to be the man I was back when I slew the mighty Eruthalion. But the gods will not give us everything we want all at once, will they? I was young then and am old now, but now I can give my men the orders that the old men have a right to give. The wielding of the spears is for those younger. So he spoke, and Agamemnon moved on gladly, until he came across Menestheus, son of Peteos, standing around warlike Athenians. And close by was clever Odysseus with the ranks of the Cephalonians. They were no weak warriors, but they were standing about, idling, unoccupied, still waiting for some other body to move first, to make a charge and get the battle started. When Agamemnon saw this, he rebuked them angrily. Menestheus, son of Pityos, Odysseus, son of Laertes, you steeped in cunning, your heart of guile. Of all men, you two should be among the first to do hard fighting. Why stand back here cowering, waiting on others? You're always first to accept my invitations when there is feasting, first to take your fill of roasted meat and sweetened wine. And now you're cowering, even when ten columns of Achaeans are moving to engage the enemy before you. Odysseus glared at him and reproached the lord of men. Son of Atreus, Lord Agamemnon, shepherd of the people, what kind of speech just slipped out between those teeth of yours? 
If you'll take the slightest interest in watching once the fighting starts, then you'll see what we're waiting for. The beloved father of Telemachus here will be grappling with the best of the Trojans. Those words you just wafted are wind. Go away, waste them on a different division. And Agamemnon smiled when he saw that Odysseus was angry. Odysseus, noble son of Laertes and father of Telemachus, excellent in good counsel and man of many stratagems, I have neither faults nor clearly any orders to give you, for I know whatever is in your heart is gonna be right, and you and I both are of similar mind. Enough of this. I will make amends for what you have said, and if any ill has been spoken, let the gods bring it to nothing. Agamemnon moved on to the last contingent of his ranks, the men led by Diomedes, son of Tydeus, and also the men under Sthenelos, son of Capaneus. Son of Tydeus, why are you standing here cowering? Tydeus did not shrink this far back. He was ever ahead of his men, leading them on against the foe. So that's what they say about him. I never set eyes on him myself, but I was told there was no man like him. He once came to Mycenae, seeking recruits to march against Thebes, and I heard that before they came to battle, he took on all those Thebans in games of strength and won every last one of them. The Thebans then tried to ambush him, fifty men against one, and he killed all of them except one, leaving Maeon under obedience to heavenly omens. That was your father, Tydeus of Aetolia, and I see his son here is more suited for public speaking instead. To this, Diomedes, the son of Tydeus, made no answer, but Sthenelos, son of Capaneus, took up the king's taunting. Tell no lies, Agamemnon. I know you are capable of truth. Both you and I boast of ourselves as greater than our fathers, for they began warring against Thebes, and we finished it, finally breaking their seven gates and capturing it, with a force fewer in number, too. By the help of Zeus and trusting in his omens, we did what our fathers could not, so do not hold them in equal honor to us, Agamemnon. Diomedes looked sternly back at Sthenelos and said, Hold your peace. Keep silent. Listen. I do not blame Agamemnon, the lord of men. He is rallying us up to fight, and provocation is his preferred method. Honor will follow him if we cut down Trojans, and pain and shame if they cut down Achaeans. Come on, remember your courage. Let us acquit ourselves with valor. And with that, Diomedes dismounted his chariot, his armor ringing so fiercely that even the bravest of men would have been scared to hear it. Just as when waves of the sea thunder onto the beaching shore, one wave following another as they're lashed into fury by the west wind. Waves rising first afar, then crashing and shattering, cresting onto jagged rocks, rough waters spewing salt and foam in all directions. So too did the Achaeans surge steadfast into battle, each leader before his own contingent of silent, obedient warriors marching without a word. Never would you have thought so large an army was moving at all, 
So hushed were they under the discipline from their commanders, their glistening armor glittering under the sun as they marched. But the Trojan ranks clamored with noise, just as a rich man's one thousand unmilked ewes will bleat incessantly at the crying of their lambs, so too did the Trojans shout and cry, with no common language for their diverse tongues, their Lycian allies calling from many different places. Ares marched these on, opposite of gray-eyed Athena, moving inwards with her Achaeans. Along her side was fear, hatred, and strife whose fury never ends, the companions and sisters of murderous Ares. Strife rose her head at first above the men, and soon all the way up to the heavens, spreading evil contention within the ranks, all the soldiers' sorrow rising. sides broke and clashed, shields slamming against shield, spears thrusting and the rage of warriors rising, shouting to the sky from those killed and those killing, the earth ran red with blood, as when torrents of rain course madly down channels, until the angry flooding meets in a gorge, and shepherds on hilltops far away can still hear the distant roaring, such was the toil of war that reached into the sky. Antilochus was first to kill an armored Trojan commander, Echipolos, son of Thalcios. He was struck on the crested horsehair of his helmet, the bronze spear plunging into his brow, penetrating the bone of his skull, and darkness shrouded his eyes. Like a tower, he crashed down and raised up dirt, and Elpenor, son of Chalcedon, captain of the proud Abantes, began dragging the body out of reach of deadly missiles, eager to strip the corpse of its armor. But that lasted a mere instant, for as he was dragging, he was smote in the side with the bronze spear point of Agenor. As he was crouched, his armor and shield were shifted, exposing a path into his ribs, where Agenor drove the point inside and loosened his limbs, his final breath leaving his body. A hard-fought struggle broke out over his corpse. Like wolves, the soldiers circled around before springing on each other, fighter furiously striking fighter. And in this struggle, Ajax slew the young Simoesios, son of Anthemion, who was conceived by his mother on the banks of Simois, as she was coming down from Mount Ida, tending to her flocks. But her son had never lived to pay his parents for all their care in raising him, for he was cut down by young Ajax's shaft in the prime of his life before he ever knew a woman. Taking a spear squarely in the chest beside the nipple on his right side, piercing into his shoulder blade, and into the dust he fell. Like a smooth, sturdy poplar growing in a meadowed lowland, will fall under a chariot builder's axe, left a season under the sun before being bended into wheels and carriages, so was the slaying of Simoesios by Ajax, scion of Zeus. And thereon Antiphus of the shining corslet, son of Priam, threw a spear at Ajax from amid the crowd and missed. But instead he hit Leocus, brave commander of Odysseus. The spear landed in his groin as he was dragging away the body of Simoesios, and so he fell and loosened his hold. Odysseus was furious when he saw his friend slain, and strode through in full armor close to the front ranks, taking aim and throwing at anyone in range. 
The Trojans fell back as he did, and his javelin struck Demokun, bastard son of Priam, who was born from Abydos and given the job of tending to Priam's mares. In rage, Odysseus pierced him with a bronze spear through one temple, the point coming out the other side of his forehead, and darkness veiled over his eyes. His armor rattled around him as he fell heavily to the ground, with Hector watching his men falling on the front lines. The Achaeans raised a shout and pushed their line forward to retrieve the dead, while Apollo, high in the Ilian Tower of Pergamos, grew angry at seeing his preferred Trojan men lose ground. He raised his godly voice and echoed across the distance. Trojans, be bold! Their skin is not rock, their ribs are not steel. Force them back, your strikes they'll feel. A commander is missing, that dread from before. The great and fierce Achilles fights no more. Thus shouted Apollo from the lofty heights of Troy. But at the same time, Zeus's daughter Athena was urging the Achaeans on all the same, watching for any soldier slacking or giving up ground. And there ensnared was Diores, son of Amarynchius. He was struck by a jagged rock thrown by Perus, who sprang on him in his last wounded breaths, both tendons of his legs broken, the bones too, as he collapsed on his back into the dust, stretching out both hands for any comrades nearby who could pull away his corpse as darkness veiled over his eyes. And even then, Pyrrhus still thrust a spear into his belly, and the guts of Diores came gushing out into the dirt. And in that same instant, Thoos of Aetolia struck Pyrrhus right back in the chest, driving his spear just below the nipple into his lung, pulling the spear back out and striking yet again with his sharp sword. And so he died. Thoos fought his urge to strip away the armor, the corpse still being guarded by Thracian allies with long spears. And thus the two corpses laid stretched out over the earth, one guarded by Thracians, the other by Epeans. And many, many more fell around them. And no man there made light work of what happened that day. No man remained unhit or unstabbed by the sharp bronze thrusted into the throng of fighting with Pallas Athena's hold on their hands guiding them, driving them forward through the volleys of javelins. For on that day, many Trojans and Achaeans laid stretched out over the earth, side by side, faces down, into the dirt. Thank you for listening to Book 4 of the Iliad. Before I go into my commentary section for this chapter, I'd like to thank our sponsor for this project, the Curiosity Stream and Nebula Bundle, which will get you years worth of prestige educational content at less than $1 a month. Nebula hosts and sponsors a number of exclusive content from educational creators like myself. It's where Extra History is posting obscure videos on South Indian sultans, and Tale Foundry is posting biographies on some of the most beloved fantasy universe world builders. It's also where you'll find a totally ad-free version of this audiobook podcast. And with my link, Nebula is included in a year's subscription to CuriosityStream, a website filled with thousands of documentaries from big-budget companies. I wanted to recommend Bettany Hughes' BBC documentary on Socrates, titled Genius of the Ancient World. 
It's a history lesson where a decent knowledge of the Homeric epics you're listening to will come in handy for figuring out what happened in the real world, and how one guy questioning their Homeric values sets us down a path that formalized education itself. And the cheapest way to get all that exclusive content is through the Curiosity Stream and Nebula Bundle, where you can get a holiday discount of 42% off a year of access at curiositystream.com slash bbclub. And remember, that code will also get you a complimentary subscription to Nebula. So once again, that's curiositystream.com slash bbclub. Anyways, back to the commentary. Book 4 of the Iliad is where I really got hooked when I listened to this for the first time years ago. The scene with Pandarus stringing his bow struck me as almost Hitchcockian in the way it teases the audience to build up suspense, while some real genuine drama is unfolding with regards to the psychological depth of the characters we've never seen before. We find out that when Agamemnon is facing a real crisis that is totally beyond what he thinks he can control, his his personality will jump to self-pitying as a defense mechanism. On my closer inspection for this production, I was also really struck by another tiny little missable joke that might get buried in other readings. When he's taunting and teasing and pumping up the genius Odysseus, he thinks so highly of himself to say that the two of them are of the same mind as each other. But Pandarus is really the centerpiece of Book 4, a minor character who is accidentally strung into the plans of gods and kings far outside his realm, a tragic little subplot that teases at the Iliad's philosophical conflicts between divine intervention and individual agency, and of trading off glory for safety and longevity. It's no coincidence that the individual soldier who screws everything up for both sides here is an archer. Archers, slingers, and projectile throwers were reviled in the ancient world, despite their necessary role in battles. Being an archer was a signifier of social status just as much as it was one of perceived courage. Under the citizen-soldiering hoplite warfare system of the city-states of Homer's time, a full suit of armor, a few javelins, and a sword was very expensive, and not provided by the state. Each man would bring into battle their family's own passed-down panoply, so if someone only had a bow or a sling, that meant they had less money to spend, which also would have shed even more shame over the whole army itself, showing just how much wealth their city-state had to provide for their citizens. Remember that this was way before economics would ever become a formal field of study. The city-state's wealth was presumed to be directly correlated with the work ethic of their citizens. All of which was summarized by gendering everything. Real men were supposed to fight their enemies up close, man to man, face to face, on flat ground in clear daylight, with everyone's blood alcohol level hovering somewhere around 0.03%. That's all according to the ancient historian Donald Kagan, and it's also all ideology. The traditional ideal of the so-called civilized warfare between Greek city-states over minor strips of land which happened so much and was so normalized that the Greeks viewed it somewhat like a sport. Donald Kagan said that the Romans actually had a document claiming that there was a treaty between two city-states and Euboea that said they would never use projectiles because it was considered cowardly. But in reality, every dirty trick in the book would get used once a war turned desperate enough to break that casual sports-like threshold. 
Battles were actually decided by how many combatants triggered their survival instincts and decided to run away rather than stay and get killed or captured, which was another advantage offered to archers with lighter equipment. The doctrine for ancient warfare was that the losing side would drop their weapons or their armor if they had time to, shedding off enough weight to outrun their heavier pursuers who would stay armored and guard the new ground they've gained. Which explains why we'll hear so many characters in the Iliad stop to take a moment and strip their slain enemies of their armor. Which wasn't just a fabulously expensive war trophy, but hard evidence confirming their victory. In the Iliad's narrative structure, it's almost like time slows down while this happens, and almost like the armor weighs nothing at all. It'll become so frequent it will become a trance, and it's hard not to imagine this as somehow precursing the video gameplay mechanic of looting something useful from just about every single enemy slain. But in real-life combat between these heavily armored hoplites, just knocking the enemy down on the ground was about as good as actually using your pointed bladed weapons to kill them. And that's what turned the shields into the most important part of a soldier's panoply over the centuries, as the shield walls of Greek phalanxes slowly turned into the giant tower shields carried by the Roman legions. But in Homer's time, the phalanx was a cutting-edge classified military secret, and in the time he's describing in Mycenaean Greece, standardized formations are only barely alluded to. In either case, the idea of a large-scale society managing to sustain a large amount of professional soldiers, tens of thousands of professional soldiers who would train all day as their job, was virtually unimaginable. The ancient historian Herodotus describes ancient battles as being incited informally and escalating unpredictably. When facing risky combat, the more abstract social causes of king and country are far less psychologically tempting reasons for a soldier to risk their life than is the much more compelling cause of protecting their immediate comrades right next to them. So before warfare became a well-studied discipline, battles would start as minor skirmishes over the corpses of slain companions and their armor that would be getting pulled away back and forth between the two sides. The literal tug-of-war would escalate into a bigger full-scale battle as more and more soldiers would get pulled into helping their comrades next to them, with the rage of seeing a slain comrade fueling them much more reliably than any order shouted from higher authorities. And this is exactly how Homer describes a lot of the infantry combat in Book 4. He's still wrong about chariots, though. Nestor's so-called wise decision to put the horses out in front goes against just about every cavalry doctrine out there. Pandarus's decision to disobey orders and pursue personal glory instead is a microcosm of the bigger plot, the dilemma being faced by Achilles, and how a core theme of the Iliad is exploring these conflicts between individual agency, butting up against frustrating social norms, butting up against fickle divine intervention. The Iliad is simultaneously a work of entertainment and also the closest thing to a historical documentary than an ancient historical society could have. So it helps to think of characters like Pandarus as being symbolic memorials to real people who may have actually existed, and to think of the Iliad itself as a memorial to the real kinds of political crises that accidentally string undeserving people into the evils of greater forces beyond their control. 
In the Iliad, there are no true villains. There are heroes on both sides, and every single soldier is memorialized, all of them glistening in the prime of their life during their individual moment of pure excellence. So consider the story of Simoesios as a memorial, an homage. To give you a refresher, in this struggle, Ajax slew the young Simoesios, son of Anthemion, who was conceived by his mother on the banks of Simoeus, as she was coming down from Mount Ida tending to her flocks. But her son had never lived to pay his parents for all their care in raising him, for he was cut down young by Ajax's shaft in the prime of his life before he ever knew a woman. Taking a spear squarely in the chest beside his right side, piercing into his shoulder blade and into the dust he fell. Like a smooth, sturdy poplar growing in a meadowed lowland will fall under a chariot builder's axe, left a season under the sun before being bended into wheels and carriages, so was the slaying of Simoesios by Ajax, scion of Zeus. This person is not mentioned anywhere else in the poem, and he comes and goes all within just that short little passage right there. The entire short life of Simoesios, from his conception before he was born, to the news coming home to his parents after his death, are compared with the peacetime metaphor of a woodsman or a carpenter felling trees that grow back again and again. Simoesios was memorialized in the only way that most people throughout most of history could ever hope to be, through memory and song. The tragic cyclical contradiction of ancient living was that the surest path to immortality was through being cut down young in battle. The artifact I've chosen to associate with Book 4 here is the colorized statue of an archer from the pediment of the Temple of Aphaia. This was originally found by archaeologists in 1811, with just bits of faded red and blue paint preserved that soon faded away over the following years of the then-early archaeological preservation methods. Cleaning the dirt and grime off the statue would also clean off the remaining paint with it. A clearer look at the paint came again in 2006. The method of recolorizing ancient statues is kind of like shining lights on them at odd angles and taking microscopic scale high-resolution photos of whatever tiny microscopic shadows get casted onto the surface. As much of a novelty as they are today, ancient Greek statues being colorful was never really a secret. A lot of documentary evidence, paperwork, and ledgers tracking the hiring of painters and such have always been on the hard historical record, but not so much visual evidence. The original sculptor was depicting a scene from the Trojan War you're hearing about, and the rest of the pediment scene showed Athena hovering above many more easily recognizable characters. But the archer is only uneasily suggested to be Paris. His exotic dress is assumed to be a mark of the sculptor employing Orientalism, which would cast him on the Trojan side. And if you'll remember from Book 2, Paris carries a bow. But the sculpture also does not have the leopard skin on his shoulder either. So I like to think of him as something closer to the anonymous everyman that Pandarus is closer to. It's ironic that so much time and work had to be made to restore this statue's colors to some kind of approximation of the original, because for the visuals of this podcast, I've muted the colors back down again to fit the mood of the rest of the artwork. But for people in the ancient world who weren't as saturated with visual media as we are today, the more brighter and clashing and artificial the colors may be, may well have just made them all the more dazzling of a spectacle to look at. 
Thanks again to Epidemic Sound for their library of music and sound effects. The musicians you heard in this episode were Fabian Tell, Farrell Wooten, Ryan James Carr, and Christopher Moe Diddlefson. And I'd also like to give a big thank you to my Patreon supporters who made this project possible, which include Kai Sorensen, son of Soren, Joel Jacobson, son of Jacob, Seb Eater, devourer of beer, Tom Webster of the Many Words, Joe Bags, who holds many things, Russell Callender of Godlike Punctuality, Ask Joe Batune, the most harmonious one, Zach Schuster, teller of tales, Marty Crinlin, friend of all healers, Quiddle Sticks, he who loves all animals, JPU, the most mysterious of deities, A. Cody Schufelin, who dances every day, Occluded Chungus, voracious consumer of carrots, Graham White, baker of crackers, Erwin Unate, lover of the spiced meat, Jason McClung of the far-flung tongue, Jeffrey Paul, wise financier of funds, Pat Delaney, who is correct in all things, and finally, Michael Russell, fearsome at games of tennis.